football season is over no more college football for about seven and a half months something like 225 days so that sucks but we have a great show on tap today andrew dowdy here on the high motor podcast thank you for listening episode number two of the high motor podcast you can find episode one that was from last week tim tebow was on sports illustrator's ross dellinger was on so you can find episode one and all future episodes on itunes you can find them on spreaker overcast spotify you can also find the podcast on Twitter at High Motor Pod, and you can find me on Twitter at adowdy88. Full show today, tons to get to, so let's jump in right away. I'm going to have Teddy Greenstein from the Chicago Tribune on in a minute, talk about the college football playoff, put a bow on that, a lot of Big Ten stuff. I also want to get his take on blocking coaching interviews, and then we're going to do some guest picking with Teddy. New segment here on the High Motor Podcast, and this is going to be next level guest picking. We're going to make... All sorts of random short-term, long-term predictions. And then after Teddy, later on, our second guest today, his name is Eddie Messel. So Eddie, he's a writer with Night News. He's actually a student at UCF. So Night News is a student-run newspaper at UCF. And they ran a couple articles recently that I I took a little bit of issue with. So he accepted an invite onto the High Motor Podcast to chat about it. Looking forward to getting some more info from him, see if he can clear up a few things for me, and maybe we'll even find some common ground. Okay, we have Teddy Greenstein on the horn. Teddy from the Chicago Tribune. Hey, thanks for the time today. Let's start here. Were you more surprised by Clemson's performance on Monday night or Alabama's? Ooh, good question, man. I would say Alabama's because, you know, Clemson, I was able to witness uh, what those guys could do a week ago in Arlington, um, just dominated. You know, I thought Notre Dame's line was going to hold up okay. And then uh, Clemson, despite not having Dexter Lawrence, just completely overpowered the Irish. So I wasn't surprised with the greatness of the Tigers, but wow, I was definitely surprised by some of Tua's decisions and shocked by Nick Saban's decision on that fake field goal. So a lot of chatter, uh, part of that dominance was Trevor Lawrence, a lot of chatter about him today, I mean, especially – from those guys who who aren't in college football all the time, who haven't seen him play all season, and there you know there've been some right. suggestions that he would be the number one pick in the 2019 draft if he were eligible, and I don't even I don't think we're even close to that actual real discussion of earlier draft eligibility. But I'm curious your take on it. Do you think somebody like Lawrence, and with how many impact true freshmen we see these days, do you think that the needle is moving at all for earlier draft eligibility? Yeah, I mean. It's one of those things where, sure, there are a couple guys every year who would probably be good enough um, to play in the pros after two seasons. I, I mean, we see it now. These kids come on campus who are 19-year-old freshmen, and they look like they've spent the last 15 years in the weight room. It's just like freshmen just don't look like they used to. And Trevor Lawrence is so advanced. I mean, the high school, the, the system that he was running in high school was more complex than most college systems were probably 20 years ago. You know, he's pretty he's pretty stringy, though. He's pretty lean. I mean, he, he was making that joke uh, when we were asking him about Dexter Lawrence. He's like, y'all can see that I'm not taking anything. So I wouldn't want his body to go through what it would have to, uh, you know, against 30-year-old grown men. I, I do think probably college football players should have the right to come out and make that mistake early if they really want to, if they're dying to come out after two years and they don't want to be in school. 
Nick on Twitter last night. You know, this poor guy has to play quarterback the next two years without a salary. I certainly understand it, and yet I also feel like it's probably a pretty good life being the starting quarterback at Clemson now and uh, you know, trying to become a legend by winning two or three national titles. So earlier this week, I'm not sure if it was Sunday night or Monday morning, sometime around there, you put out uh, some 2019 storylines for the Big Ten. Couple things from that. Uh, first of all, you talked about the potential elimination of divisions in that article. You referenced, I think it was Jim Delaney's comment that that there have been more discussions about it lately. What do you think is actually driving those discussions? Is it the Big Ten missing the playoff? Are they pissed off about that, or is it other things? Yeah, Andrew. I mean, I have the same question. You know, Jim dropped that um, during a gathering of media in New York a week after the Big Ten title game, and I think a lot of coaches from the West were pretty insulted. I know Pat Fitzgerald was. You know, it's kind of like, oh, Ohio State just won the Big Ten championship game, so I guess we got to eliminate divisions. You know, when I was looking at it, and yeah, I mean, the East has won, it's 5-0 and in the Big Ten title game, so if you just look at it that way, you'd say, wait a second, you know, it's totally out of balance. Three of those five games were extremely close, and one was pretty close, uh, the one a couple weeks ago with Northwestern and Ohio State. And during the season, the East was only 12-11 and 11 against the West. So I think mean, it would be a massive overreaction, and I really don't understand why they're talking about this, except for if they want the potential for two Michigan-Ohio State games. Obviously, there can only be one now. They're both in the East. The winner of that game usually is playing for the Big Ten title. If you don't have divisions, you know, there could be a rematch. I think a rematch would be awful, you know, especially since that game comes at the end of the season. But maybe the TV partners are putting some heat on Jim and the Big Ten to try to make that uh, happen. So uh, you've you spent a lot of time, you know, you know, in Big Ten country, and you probably know that power structure a little bit better than most people. And you mentioned that Pat Fitzgerald didn't really appreciate it. I don't know what the reactions were from some of the West's power brokers like Barry Alvarez. I'm not sure what his take on that situation yeah. was. I know that he did kind of change his opinion on the playoff recently, but with whatever power structure it is in place, do you think that the Big Ten needs somebody like Barry Alvarez to hop on board for that to actually happen? Or do they, whoever's making that decision, do they not even care who's on board with it? Yeah, I mean, that one is so early and I it's going to be one of those that I look into in the next couple of months. I think Jim might have just said it to float it and get a reaction. I mean, Jim also, you know, has, has been in different spots recording the playoff where one week he says, hey, the playoff doesn't define us. We're going to be mature about it. And the next week it's, okay, let's let's think about an 18 playoff. So um, I, I have to find out if that was just something he said casually or if this is something they're really thinking about. And if so, I mean, how do you do it? You got 14 teams. You know, you're only playing each other nine times. You'd have really, I think, impossible tiebreaker situations. I think you would just be creating a complete, you know, potential disaster that doesn't need to happen in the first place. Yeah, and obviously, you can't preserve all the rivalries that exist, whether you think they're a rivalry or not. Some of those teams want those games without divisions in a 14-team league. It's going to be very hard to to create a fair, balanced schedule. This isn't the Big Ten, but you, you can preserve some of them, I think. I mean, do you think, just your opinion, do you think putting them, them themselves, the Big Ten being themselves, in best position to make the playoff, if that is what's driving it, is is that a bigger priority than preserving those rivalries as long as we get to, like, for example, keep Michigan-Ohio State? Yeah, I mean, maybe they're looking at it that way. I look at it completely the opposite. Um, you know, the Big Ten has put 
its fans through a lot in the last 10 years. Um, obviously, you know, adding Nebraska was great. Adding the Big Ten title game, really good for football. Adding Rutgers and Maryland has been a disaster. Uh, Legends and Leaders was terrible. So, you know, we're at the point now with East and West where, where most fans actually know who is in the East and who is in the West. And they can plan their travel accordingly in terms of which road trips they want to do. And, you know, now they've got a good feel for there'll be three crossover games, but you play every team in your division. And I think the Big Ten should probably be thinking about its fans before it, it, it you know, gets consumed with whether or not you make the playoffs. Um, so that's my feeling. You know, the fans were, were very upset that the Big Ten basketball uh, tournament went to D.C. and then went to uh, New York City, Madison Square Garden. Uh, I think you can only put them through so much. I, I think East and West is good. I think it, it, it's easy. It's digestible. We have a, a title game now in India every year that's that's been very successful. So I think you know, change for the sake of change is not a good idea. So also in that Big Ten storylines for 2019, you mentioned Justin Fields' transfer, the media eligibility situation there. Uh, what is your take? Do you think that he's going to be granted media eligibility? And regardless, what do you see as possible repercussions if he, he does or does not get that waiver accepted? Yeah, it just seems like more and more often it is happening. I remember uh, Kyle Prater, you might remember he was at USC, and he had an issue with um, a relative in Chicago. He wanted to be closer to her. I think the big issue is basically whether the school that the kid is departing from uh, wants to hold it up or not. So Illinois had this kid, Mark Smith, uh, from downstate Illinois. He was a big-time recruit for them, and then he transferred after one year to Missouri, and he's playing this year because Illinois didn't block him. So I think it would come down to Georgia and how the Bulldogs you know, feel about Fields' decision to leave, and I imagine they're fine with it. Obviously, there was an incident uh, in baseball related to uh, a, a racial, a racially insensitive thing that was said toward Fields. I don't know if Georgia looks at that and says, hey, we don't appreciate this kid highlighting that. It makes us look bad. Or, hey, I don't blame him for wanting to go and be somewhere more comfortable. And the fact that he's you know, doing it, he's leaving for Ohio State a team that George obviously doesn't play unless they meet in the playoffs, so, so maybe that's viewed as a plus. So I think it will probably depend on how George views it. So Justin Fields left, Pat Fitzgerald obviously staying put in Evanston, unless there's something that we don't know about or we haven't heard about. He didn't actually interview anywhere. Um, but there, there's been some attention lately on coaches getting blocked from interviews, and this happens every year, but it feels like it's kind of been magnified a little bit this year, with especially this this fascination around Cliff Kingsbury, both you know college yeah. and NFL coaches getting blocked. Gary Kubiak was reportedly um, being blocked from from interviewing, despite only being in the front office with Denver. And it, to me, this situation kind of feels like when a coach blocks a transfer or, re, or restricts his options. I mean, more often than not, when that becomes public. That coach, it usually reverses course because of the public backlash, and Lynn Swan did just that. He reversed course, allowed Kingsbury to interview reportedly with the Jets and Cardinals, I believe. And even yeah. if even if that's in Cliff Kingsbury's contract, which it seems like it is, we don't actually know for certain because we can't see it, but we just assume that it's in that contract. Do you think it's it's a bad move by Swan, or are you okay with him holding Kingsbury to his contract and actually restricting him? Well, I don't know what was said when Cliff was hired. You know, I mean, that's, I'd say that's the part that is mysterious here. 
Um, when Lynn Swan hired Cliff Kingsbury, did Cliff say, all right, I'm your guy, and I'm not going to talk to any other schools or the NFL, or did it not come up? If it didn't come up, that's probably Lynn Swan's fault. Is there something written in the contract? Maybe the contract isn't signed yet. I mean, there are a lot of different issues there. You know, in terms of Pat Fitzgerald, look, if you're a college head coach, um, do you aspire to be an NFL head coach? Jim Harbaugh probably does. Pat Fitzgerald, we don't really know. I, I think down the line that's definitely possible, but he's got so much more to accomplish at Northwestern, and they just opened this $270 million on-campus facility You know that he was the one who pushed for. So the folks at Northwestern, when they heard about the Packers, were like, come on, you got to be kidding me. Uh, you know, They feel like Fitz kind of owes them a bunch more years, and it's just not a good time to go. Um, you know, in Kingsbury's case, there's just so many variables there. Uh, how does he get along with Helton? Um, has he always aspired to be an NFL coach? Uh, you know, is there a buyout figure? Has he signed all that? So uh, a lot of mystery there, just like there's a lot of mystery as to why a quote-unquote failed college football coach is getting so much NFL attention in the first place. I, I said on Twitter yesterday, like, if he were a 3 out of 10 would he still be garnering this much attention? I mean, are, are his looks and his vibe part of this whole thing? I'm not sure. You know, when I brought up Cliff Kingsborough, I didn't think that we'd be talking about his looks, but I guess it always comes into play, doesn't it? <laughs> Just, you're feeling... I do think so. I do think so. I mean, I think these owners, you know, you want to hire somebody who, yeah, I mean, you want to win the press conference, you want to have a good PR value. I really do think, I mean, if that guy was, you know, 320 pounds and ugly, and, and, and you know, was the... <laughs> So your feeling regarding Pat Fitzgerald, one more thing before I move on here, just your feeling around the program, was there a real concern that he might actually leave? There was a very mild concern. There definitely was a thought that he was going to interview with the Packers. Um, you probably know this. Mark Murphy is the, the president of the Packers, and he is the one who was the athletic director at Northwestern who elevated Pat Fitzgerald in 2006 after Randy Walker had suddenly passed away since was is 31 years old and he became the youngest head coach in, in FBS. So, so there's a bond there. There are also four Northwestern players on the Packers roster and Fitz's agent is Brian Harlan and Brian Harlan's dad was a legendary executive with the Packers. So there was a lot there um, in terms of, you know, links. So people, all, we all assume that the only job that Fitz would ever leave for is the Chicago Bears, but you know, when the Packers open and then you think geography, you know, there are a lot of reasons to think it was possible. I think very, very few people thought it would come to fruition to the point where he would actually leave or the Packers would offer him the job. But there was some concern that he would interview. And then once the guy interviews, you know, then you, 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 I think some people start to feel a little insecure and say, wait, why is he interviewing? What's a, what, what, you know, what, what are we not giving him in Northwestern? Um, why is he talking to other, you know, other schools, in this case, another organization? So before you go, new podcast segment this week. Teddy, you're going to be our guest picker. And uh, to be clear, when I asked Teddy if he'd be interested in some guest picker questions, his response, and I quote, sure, I love being wrong. So with that level of confidence from him, I have eight eight questions for you, all of which you're going to predict incorrectly. And number one, let's just keep going with what we are talking about. Will Pat Fitzgerald ever leave Northwestern voluntarily? And I say ever. Uh, so I'm going to say yes, 
um, but it's not going to be in the next 10 years. I mean, think about this. He's, he really, he's only 44. He does want to create a Joe Pa-like legacy at Northwestern. But let's say 10 years from now, the Bears job opens. He's got to be intrigued. At that point, he will have put in, you know, 23 years at Northwestern. I think we all probably, you know, go through some kind of midlife crisis or, you know, something where you are curious about a career change. So I will say he will eventually be the head coach of the Chicago Bears. I'm going to agree, and I completely agree for all the reasons. I think because of his age, I think if he was 55, 56, late 50, somewhere in there, I think it would be a completely different uh, conversation. Number two, who is the Big Ten West winner football, Big Ten West winner in football in 2019? You know what's exciting about the Big Ten West uh, is that I think six teams could win it next year. Sorry, Illinois, you're, you're not one of the six, but Northwestern, Wisconsin, Iowa, Purdue, Minnesota, Nebraska. I don't know if there are any other divisions. I mean, maybe the ACC because the ACC just seems to, you know, half of it is just kind of random in terms of who's going to play Clemson in the ACC title game. That the other side is, uh, is always a mystery. But this, I think, makes it very exciting the way Minnesota finished, the way Nebraska finished. You know, Iowa and Wisconsin are mainstays. Purdue uh, had some momentum until the bowl game against Auburn. But I will take Northwestern because they won by three games last year, and that was without Hunter Johnson. And not that Clayton Thorson is not a good quarterback because he is. He's an NFL-caliber quarterback. But it's going to be Fitz's first five-star quarterback coming in, Hunter Johnson, who sat out the season, was on the scout team after transferring from Clemson. Very wise move after we all saw what Trevor Lawrence can do. Uh, Northwestern returns a very good team. The three-fifths of the offensive line is gone. But uh, why not? I'll take the catch. I was going to say Wisconsin. I have no confidence in that, though. I mean, like you said, I think it's going to be completely wide open. Losing a ton of guys. Uh, Jim Leonard has proved that he can work with losing a lot of guys on defense. Uh, so I'm just going to go with a safe pick there and say Wisconsin. Number three, will Fred Hoiberg replace Tom Thibodeau again? Yeah, this has to happen. Um, this is really, really perfect. I mean, we know the deal with, uh, with both professional and college uh, sports, you, you fire one guy and you have to hire the opposite. So Tibbs is obviously the hyper-demanding, gruff, uh, intense, driving type coach. And Hoiberg is the, you know, mellow, space-the-floor, offensive-minded, uh, everybody likes him, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the T-Wolves organization has really been a disaster. One of the few good things they did over the years was, was hire Fred to get involved in the front office. I'm sure they love him. Fred wants to stay in the pros, uh, to, to live in Minneapolis and to enjoy life there. So, yeah, let's do it. Get Hoiberg uh, back up in the NBA. Completely agree. I think most importantly, it feels like a job that he could actually lobby for. It doesn't seem like he's going to lobby for that UCLA job or really any college job. I mean, for me, it's really hard to get past his feelings against recruiting. So I think that this is something that he exactly. would feel extremely comfortable with. Number four, who is USC head coach in 2020? So let's go back to uh, Coach Hansom and let's go with uh, Cliff Kingsbury on that one. I, I was happy to see USC hang on to, 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 to Helton. I mean, it's not like I'm an SC fan. I'm not there all the time. I don't have the same passion that they do. I just think that a guy who has so recently well, won the SEC and gotten to the Rose Bowl probably deserves the chance to, to, to rally from a first year. I mean, I saw those guys play against third aim, and it was a pretty good effort. Um, so I think Helton was, was good for another year, but uh, sounds like he's going to be toast after this season. 
I was gonna say Kingsbury, but we we're agreeing too much on here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say for fun, I'm gonna say Dino Babers. I think that Babers has shown oh, a willingness okay. to move around a lot. I think he's shown a willingness to capitalize on success at different programs and jump to an opportunity. Um, I think that purely my speculation, I think Helton probably would have been fired if USC had a president, but I think that Swan understood that having a president in place might have been more attractive for a new head coach, might have been more attractive to get a guy like Babers. So I think it'll probably be Kingsbury, but I'm gonna say Babers. Just for fun. Number five, where is Brandon Wimbush going to transfer to? So I was looking at this. You know, Washington State needs a new coach, but uh, excuse me, Washington State needs a new quarterback. Sorry, Mike Leach. But Brandon Wimbush is not a good fit there. He is not remotely accurate enough for that kind of an offense. So I'm thinking Penn State. Um, you know, if you're Penn State now, obviously Trace McSorley is gone. The presumed starter is Tommy Stevens, who's been biding his time and playing other positions in the meanwhile. Uh, but he's had some injury issues, not completely convinced that he can be the quarterback there. They have some young guys who probably need more seasoning. So um, I think uh, a school like Penn State would be great for Brandon Wimbush, who's a high-caliber, high-quality guy. Not, not the best quarterback, not the best distributor, but uh, a good two-way player. You know, I keep coming back to a school like Georgia Tech. We don't often see teams transition from triple option to, to more of a pro-style system very often in college football. So I keep coming back to the Yellow Jackets. I think they need somebody who can play immediately, somebody who can distribute a little bit, be you know semi-responsible with the football. So I think that that is going to be my guess and say Georgia Tech. Number six, who is the next college football head coach to take an NFL head coaching job? When I say that, I mean going straight from college head coach to NFL head coach. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll go with my buddy Jim Harbaugh on that one. Um, I guess I'll pick Michigan to, to win the Big Ten East and to beat Northwestern in the Big Ten title game next year. Uh, Harbaugh, I think, uh, is one of these guys who, you know, when you look at the profession in general, uh, it's one thing to have success in college, but it, so many of these guys aspire to, to do it in the pros, especially ones that were close, ones that got to the Super Bowl but didn't win it, and I think Jim is in that category. Um, you know, I think he wants one of those jobs where you have complete power. Um, you know, I'm saying here he's going to succeed Mike Tomlin with the Steelers. Now that said, the Steelers are not an organization that, that gives a coach uh, the keys uh, to personnel. But I think Tomlin will get completely sick of coaching Antonio Brown next year. I, I think probably he'll be back, and Tomlin will just say, screw it, I'm out. I need a couple years off. I'll find a new job where Antonio Brown is not in my life. I'm going to say Lincoln Riley, and I've talked about this before. I keep going back to somebody like Chip Kelly, who, whose coaching stock was just sky high in his final couple of years at Oregon, and we saw that he kind of imploded in the NFL. Whatever you think of that NFL tenure or not, it just didn't work, and he still goes and gets a job like UCLA. So I think that Lincoln Riley could look at a situation like that, his stock being so high that even if he goes to the NFL – and it fails three, four years, he can go back to having a really damn good job. So I think Lincoln Riley might understand that. So I'm going to say him. A couple more, number seven. What will be Michigan basketball's first loss this season? Oh, I forgot to look at that. Can I call up the schedule while we're talking? Please, let me give you my answer first. I think it, I think sure, it's really hard to see one soon. I mean, that's just kind of how they're playing right now. You know, with how poorly Wisconsin has played lately against Western Kentucky Minnesota, I don't see – Michigan going into Madison and dropping one there. So I'm going to say 
I'm going to say Indiana here in a couple weeks on the 25th. I mean, that yeah. game, so that was last week, and I think it was on Sunday when they played uh, played in Ann Arbor. This one's going to be in Bloomington on the 25th. The last one wasn't even that close because Michigan jumped out so quickly, but Indiana actually played okay after that early blitz. So I'm going to say in Bloomington on the 25th. I tell you what, I almost saw Michigan's only loss this year. I was there uh, when they came into Northwestern. They had like a 12-point lead in the second half. Northwestern rallied a really close game down the stretch. Uh, Iggy and company were were too much. Um, just to be contrarian, I will say at Wisconsin on uh, January 19th, uh, Badgers are, are, you know, have had a good season, except for uh, lately, as you mentioned, Cole Center, uh, tough place to win. So... All right, last one here. We're still a few months away from this, but let's have some fun. Who is your 2019 Masters winner? 2019 Masters winner will be Tony Finnow. And um, there's a little bit of uh, of a joke here. I've been touting this guy for, for years. So Scott Michaud um, of the Augusta Chronicle always comes around in the in the press tent in the media center. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Ricky Fowler. I think. I think he's played much better there the last two years after that debacle a few years back. I think that was 2016. I think he finally gets the big one. All right, that is that is guest picking with Teddy Greenstein of the Chicago Tribune. Hey, thanks again for the time. Always a pleasure, sir. Uh, hope you have a good rest of the week. Safe travels there on the West Coast. Thanks, Andrew. Why do we even still have divisions? The logic just doesn't make sense, and I know that divisional balance, it'll ebb and flow. Like The SEC West sucked for a while. And the SEC East sucked for a while. Started getting more balanced with Georgia's rise. Florida could be moving, but then here comes A&M maybe. Mississippi State could be here. And although, like in the Big Ten, Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, you can throw Michigan State in there if you want to, it's always going to be a more reliable trio than anything that the Big Ten West can offer, at least in the near future. It's really hard to see that changing anytime soon, if ever. But the West is moving a little bit. I mean, they've made some really damn good hires recently, and I know we don't just want to assume that Scott Frost is going to return Nebraska to national title contention, that P.J. Fleck will finally get Minnesota their first Big Ten title in 60 years, or that Purdue's going to take that next step under Jeff Brom and so on, but I think that better balance definitely could be coming. However, I don't even see that as relevant. Like, it's always going to come and go. Maybe balance for a little bit, sway back one way for most conferences, but still, like, why do you actually need the divisions? Seriously, just just preserve some rivalries, have teams find a couple rivalry dance partners, get those games, have each team find agreements with, I don't know, two other teams maybe, keep Ohio State, Michigan, keep Michigan, Michigan State, keep Wisconsin, Minnesota if you can, and then let Rutgers and Maryland and Illinois pick up the scraps. Those teams might not be thrilled with it, they want some of the, the bigger teams coming to town, but... Let's be honest, it's about money, and and I don't understand how you want to preserve some rivalry games with teams that that aren't doing anything. And I don't care what drives it. If if the playoff drives it, if if missing the playoff again drives it, if it's the potential for a second Ohio State-Michigan game, a second game with that ratings haul, great. There's just no overwhelming need for divisions. We can sit down and figure out how to preserve these different games since that seems to be a big concern. That seems to be the main rebuttal when you talk about removing divisions. Now hopping on the High Motor Podcast is Eddie Messel of Night News. 
He is with the student-run newspaper uh, of UCF. Eddie, first, an apology to you and Night News. I probably came at you guys a bit hard initially. Uh, my view of, of your reporting, which we'll discuss in a second, hasn't really changed. Maybe it will after we chat here, but I do apologize for that one error in my initial article. I'm glad you guys replied on Twitter. I tagged Night News hoping for a reply, so, so my apologies for that initial error. Much appreciation to you for hopping on. Oh, uh, yeah, it's all good. I appreciate you having, you having me on. So for those of you who haven't uh, seen the story, just check it out. Uh, Eddie, you reported on it a couple weeks ago. Let me grab the headline here if listeners want to pull it up. It's on nightnews.com. The headline is uh, Lawyer Secret SEC Lobbying of UFAD for Better Bowl Broke Antitrust Laws. So that's the story itself. And then uh, your publication, Night News, published another story on, I think it was on Saturday, announcing a GoFundMe campaign for an investigation to look into this further. That headline also on nightnews.com that is, see, it's exposing insecurity in SEC security. Uh, Support our major investigation of elitism in college sports. So, Eddie, um, I think, first of all, if you don't mind, just run us through the meat of this story. You know, know, uncovering the emails, Mizzou's promotional sheet, the lawyer's opinion, all that stuff, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so the first, so for the first article, um, when we sat, when we uncovered these emails. Um, we weren't really looking for that at first, but um, we kind of came across it, and we saw that lawyer tweet about his frustration with the system. Um, he would be willing to help anybody, any player, university, with any type of lawsuit that they wanted to do against the the playoff system or the playoff committee. And we sent him what we had. And he read through everything, and he sent it back, like, hey, I think you guys really got something here for an antitrust case. It's really interesting. I'd love to sit down and talk with you guys. So we went down to Miami. Uh, we, had a, we sat down with him. He explained everything to us, basically told us that anybody who has been harmed by the college football playoff committee or the system as of now could sue for an antitrust case and win. If they could prove that they were harmed by this, they could win – three times what they what they are. Hey, hey, Eddie, if you don't mind, did he define what he thought was harmed or what potential, um, if they could prove like what being harmed meant? Did he ex- expand on that at all? Uh, he didn't go into too much depth about that. It would be the, the university, the player, or, the, or an AD would just have to prove. So whether that be, um, like I said, I'm not a lawyer, but whether it be it harmed their chances of actually competing for a national championship or it harmed their their team's reputation, something along those lines. If they could go into court and they could prove to a judge that something was hard, that they were harmed, they could win. It is tough. It's a tough lawsuit. Um, that's why no one has done it yet. He even said he is willing to help people with it if someone were to come come to him. But um, it's, it's tough to attack to attack the committee, man. It's, a, it's definitely a strenuous task. But um, like I said, he's willing to represent anybody who would want to do it. So that lawyer you mentioned, uh, his name is Daniel Ravager. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Daniel Ravager from the University of Miami Law School. Um, so he stated, and this is this is kind of where I had I took issue with the reporting. He stated that he believes um, Scott Strickland, the Florida AD on the playoff committee would have responded differently to a similar email from another coach uh, who doesn't have, and he, um, I'm quoting Ravitcher here, who doesn't have a cozy relationship. And I understand that that's just Daniel Ravitcher's opinion, 
and he's allowed to say it, and it could be a very reasonable opinion, but my problem is that that's not a, a fact, right? I mean, his opinion that Strickland probably would have responded differently to another AD, that's that's not a fact. That's purely his opinion, but that seems to be a big piece of this puzzle, right? Yeah, in a way, yeah, it is, it is his opinion on it. Um, uh, I, I'm guessing he's just basing it off what we've seen around the um, the college football playoff system in the past when it comes to teams in the group of five even trying to get a shot. Like, if he's assuming that if UCF were to send that same type of thing, same type of email, he's, he's, he's thinking there's no way he's going to tell him, hey, I really like UCF and the way they played this year. Um, but this is, like he said in the interview, he probably would have been a little more approachable about it in the fact of, you know, this isn't the right way to, to kind of lobby for new bowls. Um, we can discuss this on another platform. He might not have been as, as friendly. But, like, yeah, it, it is an opinion, um, not a fact. Yeah, that, that, that that's kind of what I'm struggling with here is that I – I understand that it, maybe he, if Danny White or, or whoever would have emailed him the same thing, maybe he would have responded differently. But like we don't, we don't know that for a fact. Like, like if, like if when I was a kid, if I went to my dad and I asked him for an ice cream cone and he said, "Yeah, we'll talk about it," that doesn't necessarily mean he's he's discriminating or it's collusion against my brother or the kid down the street. I mean, if, if the kid down the street or my brother came to him and asked for the exact same thing, and he flat out said no then I think we can start having that, that discussion. But because no other AD, Group of Five or Power Five, and I guess that's my other question here. I, I want to get one thing straight. I mean, with this with this evidence that you're calling it, are you implying collusion against the Group of Five? Like, for example, in the article you say, and I quote, uh, in this case, the little guy is not is anyone not in the Power Five. But these are there are two SEC ADs, so... My question is, what does the group of five really have anything to do with it, or couldn't you just argue that this is collusion against, like the Pac-12 didn't get in, for example? Um, we're not arguing that it's really, you know, like, we're not insinuating anything. It's just, uh, we're, we're basically just trying to shine a light that um, it, it's just kind of wrong for him to send the email in general. Um, like, you wouldn't expect anybody to be sending an email to an, a, 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 an AD that sits on the playoff committee, your resume of why you think you deserve the better bowl. That's where the, the issue lies. Is you're not supposed to be lobbying for, another, for bowl games or better rankings. <laughs> so that, that's where the issue really lies. With us. We were just shining a light on on the corruption in that sense and how everyone's cozy. We're not really trying to insinuate anything. We're just showing that the NCC is like power five schools in a way are kind of getting better treatment or they're in a way getting better treatment and they don't know and they're in a better treatment than the teams in the the group of five. So do you think it would have been – and I want, to, I want to talk about that in a second. I completely agree. I don't think that AD should even be allowed on committees. I think that is absolutely asinine. I do want to talk about it in a second. I think we will find some common ground there. But, like, like for example, um, this year, like, I think one of the committee members is Jeff Bauer, and he was the head coach at, at Southern Miss. That's obviously a group of five schools. So if, if Jeff um, 
I'm completely blanking on on uh, Jim Sturck, sorry, the Missouri AD. If he would have sent an email to Jeff Bauer, a guy with strong Group of Five ties, he's not a current coach, he's not a current AD, but obviously there's got to be some bias, subconscious, whatever, toward Group of Five for Jeff Bauer in particular. So if Sturck is sending an an email to Jeff Bauer with something similar, do you think that would be completely different? Um, it could have been a little different. Um. Maybe the way he would have gone about it, but he chose to email the USAD, which is where, which is where the kind of confusion lies. He he didn't choose to email it to or send it to everybody on the committee. But do you know that nobody? I know that you grabbed the emails to to just um excuse me just from Scott Strickland just to Scott Strickland excuse me, but you didn't grab emails to 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 Jeff Bauer or to um, Frank Beamers on the committee or there's an Arizona State professor on the committee or Rob Mullins the chair from Oregon, you didn't grab any of those emails so how do you know that no other school did the same thing? Well, that's kind of what this uh, this GoFundMe is for. So we're 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 gonna we're the, the investigation could take a while. Um, that's why we, you know, we, we kind of opened it up in the beginning, and we didn't know where it was gonna go, and it, it kind of has blown up a little bit. Um, honestly, a little more than we thought it would. And when we were on the way home from the Fiesta Bowl is when we kind of thought we should start digging a little deeper, and that's what kind of started the this whole second wave of everything. And that's why we're going to continue investigating. We're going to check out other emails, and we're going to check out anything else that that could have gone wrong or anything that could be corrupt in a sense that shows that the College Football Playoff Committee might be a little biased towards certain universities or certain conferences. Did you consider – so obviously you decided to, to publish that initial story and then launch the, the separate investigation – did you consider holding back on that initial reporting, um, speaking with Daniel Ravitcher, publishing that video, um, alleging the evidence, inclusion, all that? Did you consider holding that back, or did you feel like that was an important piece in order to get interest, in order to get funds for this GoFundMe to launch the investigation? No, because we, we, we honestly, we, weren't, we didn't think about holding it back, and we never thought um, the whole getting funds thing, that didn't come until after the initial reaction we had no that wasn't even on our mind um we thought it was it was newsworthy to kind of put it out there um we wanted to see what people's uh, you know the public's opinion on it was um like i said we thought it was newsworthy we shot light on it um it took off a little bit and then that's when we started asking a little more questions and that's when we wanted to dive a little deeper so do you think that going going back to a comment I made earlier about ADs being on the committees, um, I, I think like I said earlier, I think it's just insane. I think the conflict of interest there is completely unavoidable. You know whether that that's unrealized subconscious bias or not. I I don't understand why an AD or why somebody like Frank Beamer is allowed on the committee. I think it's ridiculous. I think there should be people with as few affiliations. As possible, I've said it several times here on the podcast. You know, put Heather Dinich on the committee, put Andy Staples on the committee. I don't understand that whatsoever. And it seems like, I guess, my question to you is: Do you think that that is more of the problem here that they're allowing these people? They're allowing somebody like Rob Mullins, whose Oregon team this year wasn't in the discussion, but with Justin Herbert coming back and they have some nice pieces coming back, the Ducks could be in the playoff discussion next year. Do you think that maybe that's more of the piece of it as opposed to deliberate collusion violating antitrust laws? Um, it could be, honestly. Um, 
I kind of, I agree with you too that I don't think it is completely right to have ADs sit on the committee. Like you said, it's def- there's some sort of even if they're being trying to be as unbiased as possible, there's some of that like bias, you know, that you got to think just kind of lays dormant in their head. I mean, they're the AD of especially some of them like like Florida, he's an AD of a massive institution, so. It could be a little more of the problem. Um, I don't think they're ever going to change that anytime soon, though. I think that's kind of the route they've gone. So, but it could, definitely could be more towards the problem. Do you think that, and, and you, you have mentioned before, you think that this is a system that, that does not reward a team like UCF or other group of five teams. Do you think that, because you don't believe that's going to change. So do you think that's not going to change because they don't want to have more unbiased opinions. They want to keep more power five affiliations on the committee so that they can keep teams like UCF out. No, I don't think so. And I, I honestly think um, the system will change a little bit and teams like UCF will eventually get a shot. I think we're on the, like they're on the way to changing, not, not who's going to sit on the committee. Um, or that, in that sense, like taking ADs off, but the way the systems run, whether it's going to expand, I think eventually the, the, it will expand, and teams like UCF will get a shot. Whether it's in the next, however long it takes, three, four, five years, I think teams like UCF that, that come out and play and they, they show that they can compete with, with bigger schools will eventually get a shot. So... All right, Eddie, I'll let you go here. Again, I appreciate the time. Uh, thanks for clearing some things up. Thanks for defending your reporting. Uh, best of luck. Uh, I'm really curious. You know, I, I I didn't agree with the reporting, but I have no idea. I mean, there could be a collusion. Um, you know, as I stated, my only issue with it was, was basing that and calling it evidence when I believed it was just a lawyer's opinion. But I have no idea. I mean, you guys could be really onto something. I think it could be absolutely fascinating. So I really appreciate the time and take care. Thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate you having me on. You know, I'm glad Eddie joined the podcast. I respect him for that, but I I don't see it at all. I don't understand. I'm having a really hard time connecting these dots of how a a hope I hope you'll look at this promotional sheet and a big fan of your program email as collusion. Like how is this evidence in that? Like I said, it could be down the road if you had some more. I mean the I mean, emails could lead to other things. Maybe they'll uncover more communication from Scott Strickland, other committee members, but right now I don't understand how this supposed evidence is collusion. I think it's a remarkably irresponsible leap to get to that point. I mean, bravo to them for getting the emails, for, for going to Miami getting that legal opinion, but that's that, that's all it is right now. It's just an opinion. I mean, him sitting there and saying, yes... Scott Strickland probably would have replied differently to another AD is the basis for it. How do you how do you know that, though? You have no idea if that's the case. Yet, they did not find any other emails to Scott Strickland from other ADs, but that doesn't mean that he wouldn't have replied similarly or differently. That doesn't prove anything. I completely agree, like I said, that ADs should not be sitting on that committee. I don't think you should have any of those affiliations on there at all. I think it does create conflicts of interest. It's not right. It shouldn't be done that way. But the fact remains that it is done that way right now. I don't see it changing. But you can't just assume that he would reply differently. 
you don't know the relationship there. You don't know if he would have replied differently to a different AD for whatever reason. So you can't just assume that that's going to happen. So until they get more, like some actual evidence, I think that this could be one piece of it. It helps maybe open up another door. But until they get some actual evidence, I'm having a really hard time taking this seriously. When they're calling this evidence calling this a cartel and that they're, they've found evidence of collusion and they're trying to find more evidence of collusion, I don't get it at all. I have a really hard time taking, taking that seriously. Alrighty, thanks again to Teddy and Eddie. Teddy and Eddie, that's fun, for joining the High Motor Podcast today. Next week, we're going to have uh, a couple more guests. i got a couple guests locked into that. Looking forward to chatting with them. Check out the High Motor Podcast on Twitter at High Motor Pod. We're on iTunes, Spreaker, and Spotify. And thank you for listening to this episode of the High Motor Podcast. Please come back next week. That's going to be Tuesday, January 15th for more. This is the High Motor Podcast on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. Oh